The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is the Pittsburgh CityCast with Tim Benz, presented by Bet Rivers. I loved it. You know, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a complete effort top to bottom. I thought it was a great hockey game on both sides. You know, that's a really good team. Uh, I thought our team played really hard tonight. I thought we competed hard. Um, I loved our resilience. You know, we didn't get deflated when we got scored against. We just kept playing the game. Yeah, that was a heck of a win for Mike Sullivan of the Pittsburgh Penguins in Minnesota last night. But it was also a heck of a loss in the injury column with Jason Zucker going down again already. Tim Benz here for the Pittsburgh City Cast. Download the app today or go to betrivers.com. Penguins win in Minnesota 4-3 to in overtime, which means I lose because I had the under. You also lost if you had Jason Zucker lasting more than one game before getting hurt again. My God, what did this guy do wrong in life to deserve this kind of karma? He gets spilled into the boards and a bad stick check from Kevin Fiala that could have been called for three different penalties, and he gets none. Now we wait to see how long Zucker is out after missing a huge chunk of time with core muscle surgery. He doesn't even last two whole periods in his return against his former team. At the end of the game, though, what a play by John Marino, Brian Rust, and Evgeny Malkin to score the game winner. Gino nets it in the wild. Give up more than three goals for just the first time in eight games. The Pens snapped the Wild's seven-game win streak. No more football, no problem. Bet Rivers serves up tennis, soccer, hockey, college and pro basketball, and more. Don't miss out on Bet Rivers' many daily specials or try your hand at live player props or same-game parlays. No matter what you bet on, you can count on your withdrawal approval happening fast with more than 80% of withdrawals approved instantly at Bet Rivers. Get started with life after football with Bet Rivers. 
and the Bet Rivers app presented by Rivers Casino Pittsburgh. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The problem for the Penguins is that they don't pick up any ground of the Hurricanes for first place in the Metro. That's because the Carolina Hurricanes had a 4-0 shutout of the Canadians last night. That helped me out with that parlay we told you about yesterday on the CityCast with Mike Pursuta. I had the Canes parlayed with the Bruins, who bombed the Devils 8-1, and the Florida Panthers, who also enjoyed a 4-0 shutout of their own against the Chicago Blackhawks. I stayed away from the late parlay that I was thinking about with Calgary, the Stars, and the Avs, and that's a good thing because the Flames would have killed it. See, I keep telling you how good the Flames have been to me. They even lose when I decide to stay off of them and then win when I play them. Clearly my favorite Western Conference team. We'll look at some of the spreads tonight in just a little bit, but for now let's recap some more of that crazy affair between the Wild and the Pens. The Excel Center last night with Seth Rorba of Trib Live, who joined me on the Breakfast Bench podcast at the Trib. He's our hockey beat writer there. We start off talking about the game between Pittsburgh and Minnesota and the way the Pens fought through a blown lead to eventually get the victory in overtime. Seth, at the time that we're speaking, there is no update on Zucker, and uh, from what I understand, there probably won't be today because there's no practice, right? Yeah, that's correct. They changed their schedule, so no practice, which means no media availability. So the next media availability won't be until, what, I think two hours before the game in Colorado on Saturday. So uh, presumably no update on Jason Zucker. Um, the Penguins did post a video from their dressing room uh, where Evgeny Malkin was giving out the game, the the helmet that they use for like their MVP game of uh, the game or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And, uh, Zucker kind of quipped, uh, yeah, it's good to be back for a period and a half or something like that. So, um, didn't seem like it was dire, at least in terms of, you know, impacting, you know, maybe something of a gallows humor, I guess, for Jason Zucker, but, uh, certainly just, just doing a visual examination of, of how he went into the boards there and, um, how he needed help off the ice and everything. Like that certainly didn't suggest that he'll be back in the lineup anytime soon, but, um, at the same time, too, I, I you know, I, I don't know that it was as worse as it probably could have been. So, uh, again, that's all speculation on my behalf, but uh, we, we won't get any kind of official word until Saturday. Yeah, if he was done for the year or, you know, had to be hospitalized or if they knew that the news was dire, I don't think they would have put that clip out, Seth. I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah, and um, Mike Sullivan even sort of offered a little bit of room for optimism in post-game comments uh, from last night. Uh, it just it, again, he didn't uh, outright, you know, just seem doom and gloom with it. But um, I mean, and it's just you're just concerned just in general because you know he is coming off a, a you know a core muscle injury, and uh, that entails you know the groin muscles and everything like that, which are absolutely vital for skating. And he goes into the boards and almost does a complete split. And, yeah. Uh, he was kind of holding his uh, right, the inside of his right thigh there uh, afterwards when athletic trainer Chris Stewart was looking at him. So, um, yeah, if he was coming off a shoulder or a knee or whatever, okay, yeah, you'd be concerned. But just the fact that the, the type of injury that he was coming off of um, just amplifies like, the concern, I guess, just given how uh, he went into the board so awkwardly. Fiala knew he had done the wrong thing right away, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, they play together in in, in uh, Minnesota, so, I mean, there's a connection there, but uh, no, he clearly seemed distressed as well. Uh, Mark Friedman kind of shoot him away after after the fact, but, um, you know, Kevin Fiala uh, definitely seemed somewhat concerned uh, as far as, you know, what happened there. Um, and, I, you know, again, I, I, you know there's, a, there's a personal connection there. Jason Zucker was 
um, really a, a world-class citizen uh, when he during his time in Minnesota. Well, that's the, the thing. It's like, he, you know, I thought karma would be on this guy's side. He's Mr. Nice <laughs> Guy, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he won the King Clancy Trophy there in Minnesota, which is, you know, goes to players who, you know, you know, lead a lot of community efforts off the ice and things like that. He's, I, I want to say it's like one of the fair, relatively few individual trophies the Minnesota Wild have ever won. Uh, so Jason Zucker's got a pretty big place in, in that franchise's still brief history, uh, still makes his home in Minnesota. So, yeah, I mean, of, of all places for him to come back and potentially suffer the same type of injury, uh, it, it's, it, it's, you know, just a little bit of cruel, I guess, in that, that regard. But, uh, no, I mean, I, Kevin Fiala, just based on the body language, almost immediately realized something went wrong on his behalf there uh, with how he kind of sent Jason Zucker into the boards. And it didn't get called. And yet everything in the first period got called. Yeah, you know, the Penguins ended up scoring on the sequence. So right, I, yes. I so I don't know if legally they would have been allowed to call anything. I mean, presumably that would have been on a delay penalty if they had called something. But, um, yeah, I don't know that you could have, you know, given out a, a roughing minor or an interference minor or whatever, boarding or even a major penalty after the fact. Just Cross-check. Based on the scoring there. Yeah, just based on the Penguins scoring there. Um, I just don't know legally if the, if the referees would have been allowed to, to give a penalty there in that situation. But, but yeah, I mean, there was uh, a healthy amount of penalties in that game. Mike Sullivan kind of no comment on it. Dean Edison, the uh, Minnesota coach, actually kind of was pretty open, open and complaining about it, saying, you know, the referees should have let both teams play in that game. Man, he did, wasn't, from my, from my understanding, he, he wasn't complaining about the, the outcome, uh, his team losing because of the penalties. He just was more angry about um, the officials not allowing um, – uh, both teams to play a little bit more thoroughly. So, um, no, that was a, that was, you know, that was overall a pretty, you know, satisfying, appetizing type of game. The only part that was maybe a little bit bitter was just how the officiating was uh, inconsistent, let's say, uh, throughout most of the evening. Seth Rorba with us. Looking at the goaltending, Seth, I think what we saw from Casey to Smith is sort of the definition of when people say he's a battler. He battled. I mean, there was like two, at least two crazy extended sequences where there were six and seven people in the crease and he's still fighting to find the puck. And a couple times it stayed out. Uh, that was, uh, I think, an effort on his part to kind of show, as he had talked about recently, that his athleticism is still part of the game for him. I, I know he made some comments recently about, like, I just don't want to be a puck blocker. You know, I, I got to use some of my athleticism some more. And I think that was on display and that quality of him fighting through trash and fighting through traffic was there on a number of occasions. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of the smaller goalies in the league. I mean, in fact, I want to say he's one of the five smallest goalies. Uh, if you're just going by weight, he's six foot one eighty one, And, you know, we're kind of in an era where the one position that's getting bigger on the ice is the goaltending position. I mean, you're seeing a lot of guys are six, three, six, four, six, five, um, you know, Ben Bishop, who just recently retired, I think he was what six, seven or something yeah. like that. So, um, Casey Smith's pretty much an old school goalie who's, you know, more like the Mike Vernon type mold where you know, he's just relying on reflexes and speed and agility and, you know, good sound positioning. So, um, he's not going to be a guy that just kind of swallows up the net, and, you know, just absorbs pucks. He needs to be there to get to the puck and read the play and everything like that. So, um, you know, it wasn't a perfect game for him, but you know, to your point though, I mean, that was, uh, kind of a classic definition of the way he needs to play in order to be an effective NHL goaltender, just, you know, reading the plays and battling, scrambling, uh, just, you know, kind of using his agility is, you know, it's just natural quickness to kind of, you know, 
stop pucks and things like that. So, um, no, I mean, he earned that win. You know, I think, you know, again, not a perfect game from him, you know, maybe one or two of those saves, you know, you, you'd hope he kind of be able to make or, you know, absorb a rebound on, but, um, you know, he earned that win. He made some tough saves, uh, really, you know, dealt with a lot of uh, traffic there in a lot of situations by Minnesota and, um, you know, uh, it came out on top. So, um, and I'm going to be interested to see how they use him the rest of the way. They don't, I think they only have maybe two more back to back sequences this season. So, um, this was not one of them. They threw him in net just, you know, you know, in a normal part of the schedule, so to speak against one of the better teams in the Western conference there. So, um, I'm, I'm interested to see how they use him the rest of the way, just, uh, in terms of, you know, balancing between him and, and Tristan Jari with presumably the hopes of keeping Tristan Jari, uh, fresh as possible going into the playoffs. But, um, no, I mean he earned he earned that win on Thursday, and um, uh, I would I would suggest he probably earns a, a few more starts here down the stretch uh, beyond the confines of just you know back to back sequences. Man, they won another coach's challenge again. I mean those uh, video guys they have uh, Madison Nickel and Andy Saucier. I mean they're um, they're they're fantastic. I don't know how you uh, what the qualifications are to be a video coach or, or or you know how you train for that or whatever, but. Um, Mike Sullivan has full faith in them. I, I remember, I, and actually, I think maybe earlier in the season, um, I don't know if it was one of the, the Minnesota game back in October, November, or it was one of the games when Todd Reardon was filling in for, for Mike Sullivan when Mike Sullivan was dealing with COVID. Um, they had a challenge, and, and right away, uh, they, they issued the challenge, no no hesitation or anything like that. Uh, they won it. And I remember I asked Todd Reardon, like, uh, who, who gets the credit for that? You know, is that the video guys or is that, you know, did you guys see that from the bench? And right away, he's like, the video guys. I mean, they, they have full faith in those two guys, uh, Madison Nickel and Andy Saucier. Um, that's something they've earned over time. You know, particularly Andy Saucier has been here a little longer than Madison Nickel. But um, it's it's they're five for five now this season. And um, there's almost no hesitation, again, uh, when they want to you know take the word of the video coaches there you know, issue a challenge, whether it's offside or goaltender interference or what have you. So um, it's remarkable how much for all teams in the National Hockey League, that's become such a vital component of managing your, your, your game um, right inside the game. It's not just, you know, they're showing video of, you know, this is what the team will be doing tonight, or this is what, you know, the Minnesota Wild did last week or whatever. I mean, they're a vital part of the in-game management of, of the roster. And, um, it's it's really remarkable how that's become such a major part of the, part of every team over the past what 10 15 years, uh, and maybe that just comes with, with technology, you know, HD television, all that stuff. But um, it's just something where you wouldn't have seen it uh, really be that major or that vital of component of your game management even 10 or 15 years ago. But um, those guys were on point again uh, Thursday night with that uh, pretty important uh, goal. Uh, coach's challenge i would say in that in that juncture of the game Do they know football at all Do they want some part-time work sunday afternoons in the fall <laughs> i don't know if, uh, if they would just be useless given how mike's uh, mike tomlin tends not to uh, really you know go to that part of the game i guess i you know <laughs> you, you, you probably speak to that a little bit better than i can but <laughs> it got um, better this I, year it got a little bit better this year I would suggest Mike Sullivan probably has a little bit more faith in in that part of his uh, team than Mike Mike Tomlin does. Seth Rarba with us. I really liked the work that was done to set up the goal from Malkin in overtime. I thought Marino and Russ did some good things on the entry and to control the puck in the zone before Gino eventually scored. 
Yeah, I mean, Marino's been playing, you know, has some rough games as of late. In fact, he had a rough turnover that led to, uh, I think, the second goal by Minnesota. Freddie Goudreau, a former Penguin, scored. But um, he kind of rebounded there, especially on that sequence in overtime there where he got the puck in deep, shielded it from, I think it was uh, Tyson Jost, uh, who was, you know, a decent defensive forward for Minnesota, shielded it and allowed, you know, Brian Russ to kind of get in position there at, at the point there. Then he dealt the puck to... to to, to rust rust shot it down or, or passed it down to malkin who made a really sneaky clever move kind of going behind the net faking that he was going to do a wraparound and kind of recoiled the you know you know go with his jamming attempt there he had the three shots before the third one went in so but no there was a pretty good display of teamwork by all three players there on that sequence uh really for me you know, john marino was the one who really made it just the way he showed the puck and um allowed things to develop I and mean, you know again he's had some rough play here as of late even had a rough play in the game earlier but um uh, that was a lot of composure that was a lot of maturity on john marino's part to really allow things to kind of develop and uh set up brian rust and getting malkin for success what'd you think of what you saw from the wild you know you look at some of their numbers it's a bit surprising you don't think of the wild as a high scoring team they Average 3.6 goals coming in. I think that was fourth in the league. But at the same time, that eight-game win streak of theirs was largely based on the premise that they were not allowing many goals. I think the Penguins getting four against them, is some, there's something to be said for that. Uh, after all, nobody had gotten more than two during the eight-game win streak. I think that Kaprasov guy is, is really, Kirill Kaprasov, the, the scorer for Minnesota, I think he's up to 38 goals now. Um, I think he should be in Hart Trophy consideration, and maybe at least on the fringes of it. I think there's a lot to like there from Minnesota, and I'd be really interested to see a best of seven against the Avs to see who comes out in the Central. No, that's um, that's a pretty deep team. Uh, they don't have a superstar per se, with the exception of Kirill Kaprizov. I, I get jammed up on that name all the time, and Mark Andre Fleury, who's just you know starting to dip his toes in the water there, but. Um, and they don't even really have, you know, much at the center position. You know, the number one center is Ryan Hartman. He was like, I think a former first round pick once upon a time, but he's never really, uh, become anything close to a superstar. Um, he's a solid, okay player, but I would never in a million years say, oh, that's the number one center. You know, Frederick Gautreaux, who was kind of a, a cast off here from the Penguins. He, he's kind of centered in their second line there. Jeez. So, um, their, their strengths more along the wings and stuff like that, but it's a deep team. They have contributors all over the lineup. Um, you know, you, you know, guys who, like Kevin Fiala, you know, his, you know, ugly play there with, uh, you know, Jason Zucker, notwithstanding, I mean, he's, he's a former first round pick. Matt Zuccarello has been a 20 goal scorer in this league. Uh, Marcus Foligno has got some skill and stuff like that. And they, they added some toughness, you know, some tough guys like Jordan Greenway, and Nicholas Delorier will help them, you know, deal with some of the, the, the toughness that you'll probably encounter a little bit more in the Western conference, particularly if you go against a team like Calgary. Um, and on defense, I mean, okay, the nice players, you know, Jared Spurgeon's, you know, a, a fantastic number one defenseman. You, you got some skilled guys like Jonas Brodine and Matthew Dumba. But again, you look at that roster up and down, you know, okay, there's really nothing out there that jumps at you aside from Kaprizov. And, you know, obviously, like you said, I mentioned Flurry just just getting a start there. So um, it's a deep team. Uh, they don't exactly have, you know, spellbinding talent with, a, with the exceptions I mentioned, but. 
Um, that's a team that I just look at and I say, that's a team that's built for the playoffs. I'm not going to sit here and say they're the favorite in the Western conference. I'm not even sure they're the favorite in the central division, given, you know, the, the Colorado Av- avalanche's presence, but, mm-hmm. um, that's a team that can, you know, beat some superior teams such as the avalanche or the Calgary flames, uh, just based on how they're built. And as far as Caprice off, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I mean, if I have to cast my heart trophy ballot, it's him right now. Um, I just look at the rest of that roster and the drop off after him is pretty substantial. I mean, I, you know, I can look at say the Edmonton Oilers. Okay. Connor McDavid's leading the league in scoring, but you know, the on dry side was right there. Um, Ditto in Toronto, Austin Matthews, they have guys like, you know, Mitch Marner and, and you know, William Nylander and, um, you know, even Florida. I mean, okay. You got Jonathan Huberdeau, but you also have Alexander Barkov there. I mean, um, the only other guy I would maybe say it's in, in at least in my radar is close to Kaprizov in, in terms of that most valuable player to his team cases. And maybe Shostarkin with the New York Rangers. And that, that's a little bit of a different, uh, you know, bit of arithmetic there with a the goaltender versus a forward. But, um, to me, Kirill Kaprizov meets the criteria that are specifically outlaid. Uh, for that for that award, most valuable to his team because I really think he does the bulk of the heavy lifting for that team offensively, and he's just scratching the surface as far as what he can be. I mean, he's only in what his second full year in the NHL here. Mm-hmm. Um, last year was obviously you know a shortened year with you know the COVID restrictions and things like that. So um, he's 24 years old and he's just starting to scratch the surface. So I think that's going to be a player that really makes an impact in this league for a long time to come. Seth Roba with us. I agree with all of that. And to your point about Fiala, that play that he made in overtime, I'm trying to remember who he tried to shake, if it was Marino, but when he banked the puck to himself and wiggled his way free and skated around in the defensive zone and almost set up what could have been a game-winning goal in overtime, I mean, that, that was a fantastic move. And uh, I know he's getting pilloried for what he did to Zucker, but there's, there's some talent there. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of nice little contributors. They almost strike me as a team that's full of a bunch of, like, second and third liners up front yeah. and a lot of, like, second-pair defensemen. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if you don't have many first liners, but you have a lot of second and third liners, that's a pretty, that's not a terrible combination to go with. So I guess my biggest concern with them is just down the middle. They don't really necessarily have strength down the middle. And I, I you know, I, I, you know, aside from goaltending, I've always thought, you know, center icemen are probably the most important position. And we've certainly seen what that can do for a team here in Pittsburgh over the past 15 years. But um, again, that's a team that I don't think it's going to be one and done when they get in the playoffs. What do we think about the Avs, Seth? Um, I want to see them do it in the playoffs. I mean, you know, in the immediate sense, I mean, they're obviously, you know, the best team in the league, at least in terms of points and stuff like that. I believe that's the case. But, um, I mean, it, they are what, you know, what they've been here for the last few years with, you know, a lot of depth up front, a lot of uh, just, just some of the absolute top-tier talent in the NHL with Connor McDade. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 Kyle McCarr. Um, oh, Nathan McKinnon. McKinnon. Yeah. I'm getting my – uh, Irish and Scottish names mixed up there. Uh, Miko Ranton and, you know, and um, Gabriel Landeskog. Kale McCarr, I mean, he's probably going to win the, the Norris Trophy. I don't know how that's not going to happen there. I mean, he's, I'll tell you right now, he's probably on my top of my ballot right now. Not that that's a risky uh, uh, proclamation by any means, but um, it's just, you know, that's a team that's been built to be this way. Um, they've lived up the expectations, at least in terms of regular season play here. Uh, big thing for them is just um, – you know, how do they get it done in the, in the postseason? I mean, they, they've kind of come up short here a few times. Uh, but I mean, they're, they're built to be a good deep team. Uh, you know, they, they brought Josh Manson from Anaheim, uh, 
uh, who's you know a, a nice physical defenseman. Devin Tays, who played in, for the New York Islanders for a few years, there is really kind of you know since in there become a pretty solid pairing there with uh, Kale McCarr as well. So um, they're actually dealing with an injury with uh, Gabriel Landeskog out of the lineup right now, but you know, they still have Valerie Nichushkin, a former first round pick of the Dallas Stars, is kind of fit in there. They brought in Arturi Lechtenin, a nice you know kind of uh, second third line winger there from Montreal at the trade deadline. So they they it's a nice deep team. Um, you know, and McKinnon's again, back. He did play last night. Yeah, yeah. There were some concerns about him with maybe a hand injury after he got in a fight. I think with Matt Dumba actually. So, uh, but he he came back in the lineup. So, um, I mean, we'll see how they go, how things go for them. I'm just curious for them with the goaltending there. Um, you know, Darcy Kemper was the guy that was brought in to be you know the, the number one guy there, and he, he's played okay, but. Um, not really a guy that's had much of a playoff history, uh, just given some of the teams he's played on, you know, Arizona and Minnesota has never really been a guy that's, uh, had, you know, been in a position, I guess, to go deep or, or have expectations there. But, you know, he's, there's a lot of expectations on him, uh, just going to that type of team. Um, he's a guy that, uh, again, is mostly untested, but, um, you know, this is a team that's, you know, it's, it's Stanley Cup or bust for them in terms of just the expectations there. They're no longer the team that's like kind of up and coming. They're a team that, you know, everyone in the world kind of has expectations of them to be a Stanley Cup contender. Personally, I think Calgary is going to be the best team out of the Western Conference. I'd be surprised if Calgary, just uh, how well defensively they play, isn't the team that comes out of the Western Conference, you know, barring injuries or anything like that. But um, there are the highest of expectations on the Colorado Avalanche, and I would suggest probably no other team in the league right now has uh, higher expectations foisted upon them at this moment. Most well, probably because they have Jack Johnson. Oh, clearly, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> relying on all, all his championship experience, I mean, how could you not? Seth, thanks. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week, all right? Anytime, Tim. All right, so my thanks to Seth Rohr. But by the way, Kaprasov scored last night, too. I told you to play him. Goal number 38, Freddie Gaudreau. I didn't see that one coming. What can I say there? But, yeah, Kaprizov is something else. And much like Chris Kreider, who's knocking the door 50 goals, he scored against the Pens. The hot player does it to Pittsburgh again with that goal uh, as part of the comeback for Minnesota. They got a point out of it, but the Penguins get two. And really, when you give away a point to a Western Conference team, what difference does that truly make? Tonight, the best bet on the board, I think, is Tampa. After a night off at home against the Blackhawks, who got shut out by Florida last night, 4 to nothing. Play Tampa any way you like. It's minus 335 on the money line, so maybe go puck line. I still think that's a safe bet at minus 134 if you did want to go puck line at a goal and a half. If you want to parlay Tampa, you can. I'm not sure there's a clear-cut dance partner that I love tonight. Maybe the Rangers at minus 167 against the Islanders or perhaps the Golden Knights at 167 against the Kraken. But the safest play to me is just Tampa straight or get the odds down and go puck line if you are more comfortable with that. If you think that game is going to be close because Chicago is going to come out spirited and play well after being shut out, I get it. But hey, uh, it can always be 4-3 Tampa in the third with an empty netter to cover your winnings. So just consider that before you make any plays tonight when it comes to hockey. When we come back, some football and our official Final Four picks as well that's coming up on the Pittsburgh CityCast. No more football? No problem. Bet Rivers Sportsbook serves up tennis, soccer, hockey, college and pro basketball, and more. 
Don't miss out on Bet Rivers' many daily specials or try your hand at live player props or same game parlays. No matter what you bet on, you can count on your withdrawal approval happening fast with more than 80% of withdrawals approved instantly at Bet Rivers. Get started with life after football with the Bet Rivers app. Presented by Rivers Casino Pittsburgh, must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Back on the Pittsburgh CityCast. Okay, final four picks. Officially, I'm loading up on Kansas. Maybe get it down to three points or minus two and a half at minus 143 and minus 155, respectively. Justin Moore of Villanova, his injury. Too much to overcome, I think, for the Wildcats. Moore is a six foot four, 210-pound guard. That size will be missed. He's the Wildcats' second-leading scorer and third-leading rebounder. He's second for Villanova in assists and third in steals. That hurts in every department. Give me Kansas. I'm torn on UNC and Duke. I think I'm going to slide the line to under a possession and take Duke at minus 141 to cover two and a half. But there's a big part of me that wants to push the line in the other direction and take UNC at plus five or plus six. That's where I think this game is going to live all game long, and I think that's where it's going to end up. But I'm going to keep it simple. Go Duke minus 2.5, and and the projected line of Duke minus 1 over Kansas. Give me Duke all day on that for Monday night, and I may get in early just in case that line actually comes to pass because I love it. I think Duke's bigger challenge is getting by UNC. If they do that, I love them regardless of who they play on the other side of the bracket. We'll recap that on Saturday. Excuse me, we'll recap the Saturday action on Monday. Then we'll talk about the title game with Mike Pursuta on Tuesday's Pittsburgh CityCast. Then we're off for a few days for the Frozen Four in Boston. Michigan holding steady at a plus-150 favorite there. Denver's the long shot odds. They're holding steady, too, at plus-400. Minnesota State... Getting lots of love, it appears, as their line narrows to plus 225, and Minnesota's value has increased to plus 375 since we last spoke. The Dryden McKay factor kicking in, it appears. The under of five in that all-Minnesota matchup is at least now coming in at plus money, at plus 100. I mean, I think yesterday when we were talking about that, it was under five, and it was still minus money, if you can believe that, so... It's now up to plus 100 in that regard. But let's wrap up with some Steelers football. I haven't talked much Steelers today, so let's do that. Uh, I wrote about this in the Trib a bit, how Mike Tomlin is not in his nature to feed media hype. Generally, the more spin a story is getting, the more Tomlin tends to downplay it. Now, when it comes to the team's ongoing study of this year's draft-eligible quarterbacks, though, It's not been the case for Tomlin. In fact, during NFL owners meetings this week, Tomlin went so far as to say during an interview session, I think it was during the Monday brunch that they do there, he referred to the pre-draft workouts that the Steelers were going to for all the pro days as quarterback week. You know, when you label it quarterback week, you're not getting away from the hype. You're adding to it. Then he gushed about how much he enjoys the anxiety surrounding long-term quarterback uncertainty in Pittsburgh and how much he's looking forward to that professionally for the first time since Ben Roethlisberger was drafted in 2004. Here's the quote if you missed it. I'm probably energized in a real positive way, Tomlin said. I like the anxiety associated with professional uncertainty. We've got to acknowledge that we're in a different space. Hopefully that brings out the best in all of us. 
Oh, there's energy in Pittsburgh surrounding the topic, Mike. That's pretty clear. It's pretty much all people have been talking about since Roethlisberger said his final goodbyes. And anxiety, yeah, for a large portion of the Steelers fan base, that's a pretty fair description. Uh, I'm anxiety-addled about it. I'm having anxious moments every day when I think about it. And maybe not anxiety in the sort of positive undercurrent that Tomlin exuded with that quote either. More of the old-fashioned fingernail-biting flop sweat associated with a group of people that's hard-selling itself with the notion that Mitch Trubisky is the answer. For as much as Tomlin is embracing and advancing the quarterback conversation along with the fans and media, there may be a few underlying motives. The anxiety and professional uncertainty he's pushing will surely be felt by Trubisky, Mason Rudolph, and Dwayne Haskins, perhaps sharpening their level of competition and attention to detail even more. So if Tomlin is building up quarterback week and quarterback hype, maybe that puts the other three guys on high alert to be even more competitive, as as if such a concept was possible, but maybe that's what he's going for. Also, the nonstop focus on which quarterback the Steelers may draft in the first round deflects attention away from the level of interest in any other non-quarterback first-round candidate that they might have in mind. Now, I'm not suggesting that the pre-draft quarterback study is this full-blown, intentional smokescreen. I do think it's genuine that the Steelers are interested in the quarterbacks they've been looking at, but if more teams are inclined to gobble up all the quarterbacks early for fear that the Steelers might move up to get one, that'll leave more players at other positions available at pick 20, especially if the Steelers decide to stay there. That's not a bad potential outcome. Another residual benefit of Tomlin allowing himself to bask in the spotlight of quarterback uncertainty is less focus spent on how many questions still exist about his roster elsewhere. Beyond Trubisky, for as much praise the Steelers got for spending a little more money and being a little more active than the franchise normally is in the first few days of free agency, The truth is they didn't exactly fill out the team's holes with surefire front-line starters. James Daniels, sure. He's a real nice addition to guard. Miles Jack could be an inside linebacker. Or like Joe Schobert, he could be the second Jacksonville Jaguar inside linebacker the Steelers have acquired based on who he used to be as opposed to who he still is. At least some of his analytics suggest that that could be the case. Is Mason Cole the new starting center displacing Kendrick Green for good? Or is he just a better B.J. Finney-type backup interior lineman? Is Levi Wallace going to buffer the loss of Joe Hayden at cornerback or remind us of Artie Burns? Jannard Avery feels to me like a poor man's Arthur Motes. And let's hope we don't ever call Gunnar Olszewski a poor man's Ryan Switzer, but I'll reserve judgment. The point is, in free agency, the Steelers got lots of guys. Yet aside from likely Daniels and potentially Jack, I'm not sure how many true difference makers they acquired. However, if all we're talking about is Trubisky versus Rudolph versus Haskins, plus Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, Sam Howell, or Matt Corral, then maybe nobody bothers to worry about such matters. Or maybe nobody else notices that the team is now down three receivers, backup running back hasn't been addressed, tackle still looks thin, defensive line depth is still a question, and it will be until we know what's going on with Stephon Tuitt. I've still got concerns about that. I've still got concerns about cornerback, and they aren't counting 
Carl Joseph as the next starter next to Minka Fitzpatrick, are they? But all that said, circa 1999 or 1985, who's going to be talking about any of that when there's a three- or four-man derby at quarterback? Here's another quote from Tomlin. We got capable guys that are good guys. We're really transparent in terms of how we do business, and so it's not something that's worrisome as a proposition for me, to be honest with you. It's something that I'm excited watching develop. Those guys compete and sort themselves out like I am in any other position where we have capable guys vying for reps. Okay, Mike, I just question how capable some of those guys are at certain positions. And I'll question how much any of us will be paying attention if the Steelers' quarterback depth chart is the current three-headed monster plus one more who might be selected in the first round. And as for all of us being anxious about that, while Tomlin pays attention to everything else, well, maybe that's exactly how he likes it. Steelers plus 7,000 still to win the Super Bowl. The Bucks at plus 750, second behind Buffalo after the news of Tom Brady coming back and Bruce Arians retiring. Then it's KC at 1,000 and the Packers at 1,100, followed by the Rams, who just stole Bobby Wagner away from the Ravens. They're at plus 12,000 around out the top five. Like, you know, that's just one that really makes me go nuts as it relates to the Steelers. That's the inside linebacker they should have gotten, and they could have done it. And all I see on Twitter for the past 24 hours since that signing was made by the Rams is, how do they do it? Where do they get the money? They got Stafford. They got all these other guys. Why? Because I'll tell you why. Because the cap is phony. The cap is a pyramid scheme. You can always borrow against tomorrow for today when it comes to the NFL salary cap. And the Steelers could have done that to lure Aaron Rodgers away from Green Bay or Derek Carr away from Vegas. They chose not to. They could have been in on the bidding for Russell Wilson along with the Denver Broncos. They chose not to. Hey, that's their prerogative. If they thought it was just too much cash for Aaron Rodgers, if they thought the currency to get Wilson was too much, okay. But this every year annual paranoia from Steelers fans, how are they going to get anybody under the cap? How are they going to move around the cap? They're so cap strung. Well, they weren't this year. And the Rams apparently were, and they're still getting guys like Bobby Wagner. Because you can always borrow against tomorrow for today. It's how the cap is designed There's one true hard cap in pro sports, and it's hockey, and that's it. The luxury tax doesn't mean crap in baseball. The salary cap doesn't mean anything in the NBA or the NFL. It does in hockey, and that's it. It should never be an excuse for why a team doesn't go out and get somebody. In any sport, if you can renegotiate contracts, the salary cap really doesn't exist. So let's stop with the, oh, the Rams are geniuses or the Rams are wizards for figuring out the salary cap. Everybody in football knows these tools. They're just electing to not use them. And the Steelers, chief among the teams that don't. And they fall back on the narrative that their friendly media always advances about the cap, the cap, the cap. And the fans, they just buy right in. And it's too complicated for John Q. Yinzer to figure out. It's too complicated for me to figure out. I don't really know how the Rams got around it. I just know you can. And everybody who says, well, geez, they're going to pay for it someday. Do you care? They went to one Super Bowl. They won another. If they do get into cap jail eventually, or they do have to shed salary and reboot the team in a couple years, it's still worth it. And you can get better fast, as they've proven, 
as the Bucs have proven, so long as you get the quarterback. And now we're back to the quarterback conversation again, aren't we? Speaking of the Ravens, the other three teams, the AFC North, Cleveland at plus 2,000, then the Bengals and the Ravens are next at plus 2,200. All right, one more thing I want to get to before we get to the weekend. I encourage you to go to Breakfast with Ben's at Trib Live. Wonderful podcast up with Mike Ruzioni, the 1980 Team USA Lake Placid Olympic hockey hero. He was in town in Pittsburgh for the Mario Lemieux Celebrity Hockey Camp, which goes to benefit the Lemieux Foundation and its fight against cancer and its fight for cancer research. Ruzioni does it all the time because he and Lemieux have gotten very close over the years in large part because of his relationship that he developed with Mario through Tom Barrasso doing golf tournaments and things of that sort. And Ruzioni was kind enough to come on with me to talk about the events that were taking place to raise money for the Lemieux Foundation through the Celebrity Camp. It's private events, raised like $4 million dollars for cancer research through the Lemieux Foundation in his first 10 years. And he shared a funny story as to why he and Mario are so close and and why they are sort of like-minded and can empathize with the other person's role in the game of hockey and the responsibility that goes along with it because of one interaction that Aruzioni's grandson got to witness. Quite a few years ago, Mario's son Austin was playing at Arizona State and they were playing Boston University. And I said to my grandson, I said, you want to go to the hockey game? And we're going to go to a big boy restaurant. He goes, where? We're going to go to a place called the Capitol Grill. And we're going to go with daddy's friend, Mario Lemieux. And my grandson was seven years old at the time. And he didn't know anything about Mario. And my wife and I and Mario and the kids were up in Natalie. And we go to the Capitol Grill and we had dinner and we go to the game. And whenever I go to a BU game, people stop me and they want to take pictures and sign autographs or whatever. And and I'm doing that. And my grandson looks at my wife and says, no, no, how come people want to take Papa's picture? Because he doesn't know who I am. And <laughs> my, my wife said, well, he went to school here. He played hockey here. He's pretty popular. So we go to the game and word must have spread that Mario was there. So when the game's over, there's a line of people waiting for Mario. My grandson looks at my wife and says, Nana, him too? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to my wife, I said, he was a little better player than Papa was. But it, it kind of explains our friendship. Also on that podcast, Ruzioni, just great talking about some of the Pittsburgh-related guys who were tied to the miracle on ice. Craig Patrick, Herb Brooks, Mike Ramsey, Mark Johnson. Here's just a little snippet. Do you find that there's a fervent fan base who has a, a, a in-depth recognition and respect for what you guys did in Lake Placid in this city? Yeah, I, I think so, because they relate to it differently than other cities. They they have a tie into it. You know, they had Herb, they had Craig Patrick there. Um, so they, you know, even Mike Ramsey, I think, played Mike Ramsey, brief, yeah. Brief yeah. at the end of his career. Um, but yeah, I think when you when you have a member of your program or your affiliation associated with our team, you do have a, a, a special bond there. Uh, and especially what a great job, you know, Herb and Craig did when they were in Pittsburgh with the Penguins. And you know, I've always said over the years, people don't realize how important Craig Patrick was to our team. Um, you know, he was the assistant coach, but he was he was the guy that we needed in that locker room and on the road with us when Herb, as demanding as Herb was, uh, we needed that good guy. And and Craig was it. Craig was the buffer. Uh, he, he was, like I said, so important to our success. And I don't think people realize it because Herb being the head coach obviously uh, runs the whole show, but 
you can't believe behind the scenes how important Craig Patrick was. I was going to ask you next about that. The way that those two are sort of portrayed in the film, I know that I get the connection that was made with Craig because he is quiet, he is soft-spoken, everything you just discussed there. It's a little harder for me to connect with how you guys probably remember Herb and uh, the way that he was portrayed because I started covering the Penguins in 2001. And, you know, by that point, he was no longer coaching. And I, I got to know him a, a little bit as a scout. And he was so much more of a laid back, relaxed, uh, fun guy to talk to. But that's probably not the guy that you dealt with in the locker room, right? No. Uh, but it's funny. And, you know, in the movie Miracle, Herb's a lot friendlier in the movie. Um, <laughs> they, they softened him up a little. But, you know, that that's how coaches coached in the 70s and 80s. You know, Herb was no different than my high school football, my high school baseball coach, uh, Jack Parker at Boston University. That's the way they coach. They they challenged you. They were in your face. You know, they they demanded a lot out of you, and, and you responded. And, um, you know, and that was Herb. You know, the one thing about Herb, and I'll say this about Jack Parker as well, they both had a passion to coach and teach. Uh, and the other two qualities they had that I think makes a great coach is we trusted them and we respected them. Yeah, so it's good stuff at Breakfast with Ben. You're going to want to listen to it. Uh, again, Mike Ruzioni with me on behalf of the Mario Lemieux Foundation and the Celebrity Hockey Camp, which is wrapping up here on Friday. All right, we're back on Monday with Madden Monday. Then Mike Pursuta early this week on Tuesday to look at the Frozen Four. Then Mike and I are going to Boston to enjoy the Frozen Four, so we're off for the rest of the week, and we'll be back at it the next week with Madden Monday as well. This is the Pittsburgh CityCast brought to you by Bet Rivers.